Section 3 of Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ella Quint of Applebacksville, Pennsylvania. Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death by Margaret O. Oliphant. Section 3. Jeanne, however, was not discouraged by M. D. Baudricou's joke, and her interview with him changed his views completely. She appears indeed from the moment of setting out from her father's house to have taken a new attitude. These great personages of the country before whom all the peasants trembled were nothing to this village maid, except perhaps instruments in the hand of God to speed her on her way if they could see their privileges, if not, to be swept out of it like straws by the wind. It had no doubt been hard for her to leave her father's house, but after that disruption, what did anything matter? And she had gone through five years of gradual training of which no one knew. The tears and terror, the plea, I am a poor girl, I cannot even ride, of her first childlike alarm had given place to a profound acquaintance with the voices and their meaning. They were now her familiar friends, guiding her at every step. And what was the commonplace burly seigneur with his roar of laughter to Jean? She went to her audience with none of the alarm of the peasant. A certain young man of Baudricou's suite, Bertrand de Pouloni, another young Dortanin, seeking his fortune, was present in the hall and witnessed the scene. The joke would seem to have been exhausted by the time Jean appeared, or her perfect gravity and simplicity and beautiful manners so unlike her rustic dress and village coif, imposed upon the seigneur and his little court. This is how the story is told, twenty-five years after, by the witness, then an elderly knight, recalling the story of his youth. She said that she came to Robert, on the part of her lord, that he should send to the dauphin, and tell him to hold out and have no fear, for the lord would send him succor before the middle of Lent. She also said that France did not belong to the dauphin, but to her lord. But her lord willed that the dauphin should be its king, and hold it in command, and that in spite of his enemies, she herself would conduct him to be consecrated. Robert then asked her, Who was this lord? She answered, The king of heaven. This being done, the witness adds, she returned to her father's house with her uncle, Durand Laxa of Buret le Poutet. This brief and sudden preface to her career passed over and had no immediate effect. Indeed, but for Bertrand, we should have been unable to separate it from the confused narrative to which all these witnesses brought what recollection they had, often without sequence or order, de Ron himself taking no notice of any interval between this first visit to Vaucouleur and the final one. The episode of Ascension Day appears like the formal sommation of French law, made as a matter of form before the appellant takes action on his own responsibility, but Baudricou had probably more to do with it than appears to be at all certain from the after-evidence. One of the persons present, at all events, young Pouloni, above mentioned, bore it in mind and pondered it in his heart. Meantime, Jeanne returned home, the strangest home-going, for by this time her mission and her aspirations could no longer be hid, and rumor must have carried the news almost as quickly as any modern telegraph. To startle all the echoes of the village, 
heretofore unaware of any difference between Jeanne and her companions, save the greater goodness to which everybody bears testimony. No doubt it must have reached Jacques d'Arc's cottage even before she came back with the kind Durand, a changed creature, already the consecrated maid of France, la pucelle, apart from all others. The French peasant is a hard man, more fierce in his terror of the unconventional, of having his domestic affairs exposed to the public eye, or his family disgraced by an exhibition of anything unusual, either in act or feeling, than almost any other class of beings. And it is evident that he took his daughter's intention according to the coarsest interpretation, as a wild desire for adventure and intention of joining herself to the roving troopers, the soldiers always hated and dreaded in rural life. He suddenly appears in the narrative in a fever of apprehension, with no imaginative alarm or anxiety about his girl, but the fiercest suspicion of her, and dread of disgrace to ensue. We do not know what passed when she returned, further than that her father had a dream. No doubt, after the first astounding explanation of the purpose that had so long been ripening in her mind, he dreamed that he saw her surrounded by armed men, in the midst of the troopers, the most evident and natural interpretation of her purpose, for who could divine that she meant to be their leader and general, on a level not with the common men-at-arms, but of princes and nobles? In the morning he told his dream to his wife, and also to his sons. If I could think that the thing would happen that I dreamed, I would wish that she should be drowned, and if you would not do it, I should do it with my own hands. The reader remembers with a shudder the moons flowing at the foot of the garden, while the fierce peasant, mad with fear lest shame should be coming to his family, clenched his strong fist and made this outcry of dismay. No doubt his wife smoothed the matter over as well as she could, and, whatever alarms were in her own mind, hastily thought of a feminine expedient to mend matters, and persuaded the angry father that to substitute other dreams for these would be an easier way. Isabeau most probably knew the village lad, who would fain have had her child, so good a housewife, so industrious a workwoman, and always so friendly and so helpful, for his wife. At all events, there was such a one, too willing to exert himself, not discouraged by any refusal, who could be egged up to the very strong point of appearing before the bishop at Tula and swearing that Jean had been promised to him from her childhood. So timid a girl, they all thought, so devout a Catholic, would simply obey the bishop's decision and would not be bold enough even to remonstrate, though it is curious that with the spectacle of her grave determination before them and sorrowful sense of that necessity of her mission which had steeled her to dispense with their consent, they should have expected such an expedient to arrest her steps. The affair, we must suppose, had gone through all the more usual stages of entreaty on the lover's part, and persuasion on that of the parents, before such an attempt was finally made. But the shy Jeanne had by this time attained that courage of desperation which is not inconsistent with the most gentle nature. And without saying anything to anyone, she too went to Tua, appeared before the bishop, and easily freed herself from the pretended engagement, though whether with any reference to her very different destination, we are not told. These proceedings, however, and the father's dreams, and the remonstrances of the mother, must have made troubled days in the cottage, 
and scenes of wrath and contradiction hard to bear. The winter passed distracted by these contentions, and it is difficult to imagine how Jeanne could have borne this had it not been that the period of her outset had already been indicated, and that it was only in the middle of Lent that her succor was to reach the king. The village, no doubt, was almost as much distracted as her father's house to hear of these strange discussions, and of the incredible purpose of the bonne douce fille, whose qualities everybody knew, and about whom there was nothing eccentric, nothing unnatural, but only simple goodness to distinguish her above her neighbors. In the meantime, her voices called her continually to her work. They set her free from the ordinary yoke of obedience, always so strong in the mind of a French girl. The dreadful step of abandoning her home, not to be thought of under any other circumstances, was more and more urgently pressed upon her. Could it indeed be saints and angels who ordained a step which was outside of all the habits and first duties of nature? But we have no reason to believe that this nineteenth century doubt of her visitors, and of whether their mandates were right, entered into the mind of a girl who was of her own period and not of ours. She went on steadfastly, certain of her mission now, and inaccessible either to remonstrance or appeal. It was towards the beginning of Lent, as Pouloni tells us, that the decision was made, and she left home finally to go to France, as is always said. But it seems to have been in January that she set out once more for Vaucouleur, accompanied by her uncle, who took her to the house of some humble folk they knew, a carter and his wife, where they lodged. Jeanne wore her peasant dress of heavy red homespun, her rude heavy shoes, her village coif. She never made any pretense of ladyhood or superiority to her class, but was always equal to the finest society in which she found herself, by dint of that simple good faith, sense, and seriousness, without excitement or exaggeration, and radiant purity and straightforwardness, which were apparent to all-seeing eyes. By this time, all the little world about knew something of her purpose, and followed her every step with wonder and quickly rising curiosity. And no doubt the whole town was astir, women gazing at their doors, all on her side from the first moment, the men half interested, half insolent, as she went once more to the chateau to make her personal appeal. Simple as she was, the bonne douce fille was not intimidated by the guard at the gates, the lounging soldiers, the no doubt impudent glances flung at her by these rude companions. She was inaccessible to alarms of that kind, which, perhaps, is one of the greatest safeguards against them, even in more ordinary cases. We find a little record of her second interview with Baudricou. The Journal du Siege de Léon and the Cunique de la Pucelle both mention it as if it had been one of several, which may well have been the case, as she was for three weeks in Vaugoulet. It is almost impossible to arrange the incidents of this interval between her arrival there and her final departure for Chinon on the 23rd February, during which time she made a pilgrimage to a shrine of St. Nicholas and also a visit to the Duke of Lorraine. It is clear, however, that she must have repeated her demand with such stress and urgency that the captain of Vaugoulet was a much perplexed man. It was a very natural idea then, and in accordance with every sentiment of the time, that he should suspect this wonderful girl, who would not be daunted, of being a witch, and capable of bringing an evil fate on all who crossed her. All thought of boxing her ears must ere this have departed from his mind. He hastened to consult the curé, 
which was the most reasonable thing to do. The curé was as much puzzled as the captain. The church, it must be said, if always ready to take advantage afterwards of such revelations, has always been timid, even skeptical, about them at first. The wisdom of the rulers, secular and ecclesiastic, suggested only one thing to do, which was to exorcise, and perhaps to overawe and frighten, the young visionary. They paid a joint and solemn visit to the carter's house, where no doubt their entrance together was spied by many eager eyes, and there the priest, solemnly taking out his stole, invested himself in his priestly robes and exorcised the evil spirits, bidding them come out of the girl if they were her inspiration. There seems a certain absurdity in this sudden assault upon the evil one, taking him, as it were, by surprise. But it was not ridiculous to any of the performers, though Jeanne, no doubt, looked on with serene and smiling eyes. She remarked afterwards to her hostess that the curé had done wrong, as he had already heard her in confession. Outside, the populace were in no uncertainty at all as to her mission. A little mob hung about the door to see her come and go chiefly to church, with her good hostess in attendance, as was right and seemly, and a crowd streaming after them, who perhaps of their own accord might have neglected mass, but who would not, if they could help it, lose a look at the new wonder. One day a young gentleman of the neighborhood was passing by, and amused by the commotion, came through the crowd to have a word with the peasant lass. "'What are you doing here, mommy?' the young man said. "'Is the king to be driven out of the kingdom?' and are we all to be made English? There is a tone of banter in this speech, but he had already heard of the maid from his friend Bertrand, and had been affected by the other's enthusiasm. Robert de Baudricourt will have none of me or my words, she replied. Nevertheless, before mid-Lent, I must be with the king, if I should wear my feet up to my knees, for nobody in the world, be it king, duke, or the king of Scotland's daughter, can save the kingdom of France except me alone. Though I would rather spin beside my poor mother, and this is not my work, but I must go and do it, because my lord so wills it. And who is your seigneur? he asked. God, said the girl. The young man was moved, he too, by that wind which bloweth where it listeth. He stretched out his hands through the gaping crowd and took hers, holding them between his own, to give her his pledge, and so swore by his faith, her hands in his hands, that he himself would conduct her to the king. "'When will you go?' he said. "'Rather today than tomorrow,' answered the messenger of God. This was the second convert of La Pucelle, the peasant Bonhomme first, the noble gentleman after him, not to say all the women wherever she went, the gazing, weeping, admiring crowd which now followed her steps and watched every opening of the door which concealed her from their eyes. The young gentleman was Jean de Nouvelle-Lompont, surnamed Jean de Metz, and so moved was he by the fervor of the girl and by her strong sense of the necessity of immediate operations that he proceeded at once to make preparations for the journey. They would seem to have discussed the dress she ought to wear, and Jean decided for many obvious reasons to adopt the costume of a man, or rather boy. She must, one would imagine, have been tall, for no remark is ever made on this subject, as if her dress had dwarfed her, which is generally the case when a woman assumes the habit of a man. And probably, with her peasant birth and training, she was, though slim, strongly made and well-knit, besides being at the age when the difference between boy and girl 
is sometimes but little noticeable. In the meantime, Baudricou had not been idle. He must have been moved by the sight of Jean, at least to perceive a certain gravity in the business for which he was not prepared, and her composure under the curé's exorcism would naturally deepen the effect which her own manners and aspect had upon all who were free of prejudice. Another singular event, too, added weight to her character and demand. One day, after her return from Lorraine, February 12, 1429, she intimated to all her surroundings, and especially to Baudricou, that the king had suffered a defeat near Orléans, which made it still more necessary that she should be at once conducted to him. It was found, when there was time for the news to come, that this defeat, the Battle of the Herrings, so-called, had happened, as she said, at the exact time, and such a strange fact added much to the growing enthusiasm and excitement. Baudricou is said by Micolette to have sent off a secret express to the court to ask what he should do. But of this there seems to be no direct evidence, though likelihood enough. The court, as she known, contained a strong feminine element behind the scenes, and it might be found that there were uses for the enthusiast, even if she did not turn out to be inspired. No doubt there were many comings and goings at this period, which can only be traced confusedly through the depositions of Jeanne's companions twenty-five years after. She had at least two interviews with Baudricou before the exorcism of the curé, and his consequent change of procedure towards her. Then, escorted by her uncle Luxa, and apparently by Jeanne de Metz, she had made a pilgrimage to a shrine of St. Nicholas, as already mentioned, on which occasion, being near Nancy, she was sent for by the Duke of Lorraine, then lying ill at his castle in that city, who had a fancy to consult the young prophetess, sorceress, who could tell what she was, on the subject apparently of his illness. He was the son of Queen Yolande of Anjou, who was mother-in-law to Charles the Seventh, and it would no doubt be thought of some importance to secure his good opinion. Jean gave the exalted patient no light on the subject of his health, but only the, probably unpleasing, advice to flee from the wrath of God and to be reconciled with his wife, from whom he was separated. He, too, however, was moved by the sight of her and her straightforward, undeviating purpose. He gave her four francs, Durand tells us, not much of a present, which she gave to her uncle and which helped to buy her outfit. Probably he made a good report of her to his mother, for shortly after her return to Vaucouleurs, I again follow Miquelet, who ought to be well informed, a messenger from Chinon arrived to take her to the king. In the councils of that troubled court, perhaps, the idea of a prodigy and miraculous leader, though she was nothing but a peasant girl, would be not without attraction, a thing to conjure withal, so far as the multitude were concerned. Anyhow, from any point of view, in the hopeless condition of affairs, it was expedient that nothing which gave promise of help, either real or visionary, should lightly be rejected. There was much anxiety, no doubt, in the careless court still dancing and singing in the midst of calamity, but the reception of the ambitious peasant would form an exciting incident at least, if nothing more important and notable. Thus the whole anxious world of France stirred round that youthful figure in the little frontier town, repeating with many an alteration and exaggeration the sayings of Jean, and those popular superstitions about the maid from Lorraine, which might be so naturally applied to her. It would seem, indeed, that she had herself attached some importance to this prophecy, for both her uncle Lexa and her hostess at Vaucouleurs report that she asked them if they had heard it, 
which questions stupefied the latter, whose mind evidently jumped at once to the conviction that the prophecy was fulfilled. Not in Domremy itself, however, were these things considered with the same awe-stricken and admiring faith. Nothing had softened the mood of Jacques d'Arc. It was a shame to the village Boudome to think of his daughter away from all the protection of home, living among men, encountering the young seigneurs who cared for no maiden's reputation, hearing the soldiers' rude talk, exposed to their insults, or worse still, to their kindness. Probably even now he thought of her as surrounded by troopers and men-at-arms, instead of the princes and peers with whom henceforth Jean's lot was to be cast. But in the former case there would have perhaps been less to fear than in the latter. Anyhow, Jean's communications with her family were more painful to her than had been the jeers of Badricou or the exorcism of the curé. They sent her angry orders to come back, threats of parental curses and abandonment. We may hope that the mother, grieved and helpless, had little to do with this persecution. The woman who had nourished her children upon saintly legend and scripture story could scarcely have been hard upon the child, of whom she, better than any, knew the perfect purity and steadfast resolution. One of the little household, at least, revolted by the stern father's fury, perhaps secretly encouraged by the mother, broke away and joined his sister at a later period. But we hear, during her lifetime, little or nothing of Pierre. Much time, however, was passed in these preliminaries. The final start was not made till the 23rd of February, 1429, when the permission is supposed to have come by the hands of Colette de Vienne, the king's messenger, who, attended by a single archer, was to be her escort. It is possible that he had no mission to this effect, but he certainly did escort her to Chinon. The whole town gathered before the house of Badricou to see her depart. Badricou, however, does not seem to have provided any guard for her. Jean de Metz, who had so chivalrously pledged himself to her service, with his friend, de Pouloni, equally ready for adventure, each with his servant formed her sole protectors. Jean de Metz had already sent her the clothes of one of his retainers, with the light breastplate and partial armor that suited it, and the townspeople had subscribed to buy her a further outfit, and a horse which seems to have cost sixteen francs, not so small a sum in those days as now. Laxa declares himself to have been responsible for this outlay. Though the money was afterwards paid by Badricou, who gave Jeanne a sword, which some of her historians consider a very poor gift, none, however, of her equipments would seem to have been costly. The little party set out thus, with a sanction of authority, from the captain's gate, the two gentlemen and the king's messenger at the head of the party, with their attendants, and the maid in the midst. Go, and let what will happen, was the parting salutation of Badricou. The gazers outside set up a cry when the decisive moment came, and someone, struck with the feeble force which was all the safeguard she had for her long journey through an agitated country, perhaps a woman in the sudden passion of misgiving, which often follows enthusiasm, called out to Jeanne with an astonished outcry to ask how she could dare to go by such a dangerous road. "'It was for that I was born,' answered the fearless maid. The last thing she had done had been to write a letter to her parents, asking their pardon if she obeyed a higher command than theirs, and bidding them farewell. The French historians, with that amazement which they always show when they find a man behaving like a gentleman towards a woman confided to his honor, all pause with deep-drawn breath 
to note that the awe of Jeanne's absolute purity preserved her from any unseemly overture or even evil thought on the part of her companions. We need not take up even the shadow of so grave a censure upon Frenchmen in general, although in the far distance of the fifteenth century. The two young men, thus starting upon a dangerous adventure, pledged by their honor to protect and convey her safely to the king's presence, were noble and generous cavaliers, and we may well believe had no evil thoughts. They were not, however, without an occasional chill of reflection when once they had taken the irrevocable step of setting out upon this wild errand. They traveled by night to escape the danger of meeting bands of Burgundians or English on the way, and sometimes had to ford a river to avoid the town, where they would have found a bridge. Sometimes, too, they had many doubts, Bertrand says, perhaps as to their reception at Chinon, perhaps even whether their mission might not expose them to the ridicule of their kind, if not to unknown dangers of magic and contact with the evil one, should this wonderful girl turn out no inspired virgin, but a pretender or sorceress. Jean de Metz informs us that she bade them not to fear, that she had been sent to do what she was now doing, that her brothers in paradise would tell her how to act, and that for the last four or five years her brothers in paradise and her god had told her that she must go to the war to save the kingdom of France. This phrase must have struck his ear, as he thus repeats it, Her brothers in paradise! She had not apparently talked of them to anyone as yet, but now no one could hinder her more, and she felt herself free to speak. A great calm seems to have been in her soul. She had at last begun her work. How it was all to end for her, she neither foresaw nor asked. She knew only what she had to do. When they ventured into a town, she insisted on stopping to hear Mass, bidding them fear nothing. God clears the way for me, she said. I was born for this, and so proceeded safe, though threatened with many dangers. There is something that breathes of supreme satisfaction and content in her repetition of those words. End of chapter 2